calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. Chapter 23. Pre-programming. Perhaps a thousand modified neutrophils had reached Charlie Petrovsky's squamous epithelium. Most of them died there, wiped out by the ever-growing apoptosis chain reaction that steadily turned Charlie into a pile of black sludge. Some, however, held on to life, held on just long enough for a gloved hand to brush against Charlie's skin. When that gloved hand moved away, a dozen neutrophils moved with it. They emitted a new chemical, an airborne signal that announced their presence to any other neutrophils that might be near. If a neutrophil detected that chemical coming from mostly one direction, it moved in that direction. Flow, reach, pull. Flow, reach, pull. If it detected roughly equal amounts of the chemical coming from multiple directions, it stayed where it was. This simple process created an instant implementation of quorum sensing, of individuals using a basic cue to communicate as a single individual. The microscopic neutrophils had a relatively massive area to cover, the equivalent, perhaps, of a dozen mice scattered onto an area the size of a dozen football fields. Much ground to cover, and yet the neutrophils had been designed for this very action. Three were too weak to make the journey. They expired along the way, leaving nine that found each other, amorphous blobs pressing in on each other. At the center of this shifting pile, three neutrophils underwent a rapid physical change. They altered their internal workings to produce a caustic chemical, a chemical specifically pre-programmed by the orbital some five years earlier. This trio pressed themselves flat against the Tyvek material of the gloves upon which they rode. The trio started to swell, to fill with fluid, until, following those same pre-programmed instructions, they sacrificed themselves by tearing open their own cell walls. The caustic chemical spilled onto the Tyvek, just a microscopic drop, something not even visible to the naked eye, but enough to weaken the material, to create a tiny divot. Another neutrophil flowed into the divot, then repeated the process, deepening the hole. Then another, and another. The chemical burst of the last one was enough to punch all the way through. Pressurized air flowed out, an infinitesimal, nearly immeasurable amount. 
sliding past the flat bodies of the seventh and eight neutrophils that climbed through the microscopic hole, all the way to the glove's inner surface. These, too, began a phase change. Their bodies quickly split into dozens of tiny, self-contained particles. Those particles flaked away, scattered like an invisible shower onto the skin of the person wearing the gloves. There the particles began to burrow. The orbital had watched. The orbital had learned. It knew of the primitive yet effective technology the humans had developed to protect themselves from infection. Drawing on the knowledge of a vastly superior technology, the orbital had prepared a way to defeat this protection. The last neutrophil sensed that its fellow microbes had succeeded. It underwent the final portion of the pre-programmed dance. It slid into the microscopic hole and began to swell, bloating until it pushed against the sides. Air stopped flowing out of the glove. That final neutrophil hardened, then died, fulfilling its role as nothing more than a plug in a hole so tiny it would take an electron microscope to see it, if anyone ever looked, and no one ever would. Chapter 24 It's about Cantrell. Clarence needed a shower. At least he was out of that suit. Built-in air conditioner or not, when he wore it, he sweated like a whore in church. Probably less from any heat, and more because of what waited just outside of the thin material. He sat in the small control center that looked down through the clear roofs of the three science modules. The console in front of him and the walls on either side were packed with computers, monitors, and communication equipment. Neat, tidy, space-conscious military design. The built-in microphone in front of him let him speak to people in the modules. Speakers in the console let him hear them talk. Through the control center's glass, he saw Margaret and Tim working away. They'd pulled Candace Walker's scalp down over her face. The inside-out flesh looked bone-white, smeared with tacky blood. Tim was cutting into her skull with a handheld saw. Clarence had been in the BSL-4 suit for about two hours total and had been counting the minutes until he could get out of it. He didn't know how Margaret and Feely managed it so well. The two of them would probably be in their suits for another eight to ten hours at least. They had both opted for devices that allowed them to urinate and defecate while still in the suit. You told her she's not a soldier. You can barely keep your suit on for 90 minutes, but she can piss and shit inside of hers for 24 hours straight if she has to. Not that Clarence hadn't faced his own fair share of awful conditions. In Iraq, his unit had been pinned down. Waiting for support, he and his buddy, Lewis Oakley, had hidden behind rocks, suffering 120-degree heat while dreading that the next bullet would hit home. Lulu took a round to the head. He died instantly. Clarence had lain there for the better part of a day, unable to move away from the corpse, willing his body to press closer to the ground. Lewis had looked on, unblinking. Clarence shook his head, came back to the moment. No time to get lost in those memories. He finished up the notes from his interview with Cantrell. Margaret preferred her information summarized, the most important stuff bullet-pointed right up top. If she needed info beyond that summary, she would ask. At times, being in a relationship with a woman who was clearly much, much smarter than he was felt a little intimidating. In their day-to-day -day life, it hadn't been noticeable. She was a woman, he was a man, things worked out. But when it came to talking politics, finances, history, or, God forbid, science, 
The gap in their IQs became clear. At least he knew more about football than she did. Or at least that's what she let him believe. He was never really sure about that one. Clarence turned on the microphone. Margot is now still a good time. She and Tim stopped what they were doing, looked up. Margaret nodded. Tim had a shit-eating grin on his face. Suits a little stuffy, eh, fella? You want me to go to the kitchen and fetch you a nice glass of lemonade to cool you off? Clarence ground his teeth in embarrassment. Or some talcum powder, Tim said. Maybe your bottom is damp. Margaret reached out, slapped Tim lightly on the shoulder. He stopped talking, but the grin didn't go away. Was he actually posturing, trying to impress Margaret? At a time like this, the guy was hitting on her? Just hope we never step into the ring, you little runt. We'll find out who's the better man. Margot, Clarence said. Verbal or send it to your HUD. She tapped her visor. HUD, Tim's as well. Clarence did as he was asked. Both Tim and Margaret read through the info playing on the inside of their visors. Fancy, Tim said. It's like Cliff's notes for holy shit the world is going to end theater. Bullet points, please, Agent Otto, don't spend any time going into actual detail. Tim cut it out, Margaret said, still reading. This is how I want my data. Clarence knows what I like. That line shut Tim up. He glared up at the control booth. Clarence knew Margaret hadn't meant anything sexual by the reference, but he couldn't help but give Tim a little nod that said, Oh, yeah, I know what she likes, and you never will. Margaret tapped the air, shutting off the report. The bleach thing is interesting, she said. Is anyone checking their suits for holes or malfunctions? I asked Captain Yasaka if someone could test them, Clarence said. She's going to have the non-quarantine divers run a pressurized rate of fall test as soon as they can, probably first thing tomorrow morning. The divers pressurize the suit and watch the gauges, see if there's a loss greater than expected. In other words, fill it with air and see if it leaks. The holes could be small, Tim said. The crawler spores are tiny. We're talking microns here. Gauges might not show pressure loss from something that size. Clarence nodded. Correct, which is why if they don't find a leak that way, they will then go for a full submersion test. They need our airlock for that, the big one that leads outside the ship. Margaret waved a hand dismissively. Any hole so small the pressure test won't show it is too small to worry about. I mean, a spore or a crawler would have to randomly land on that tiny hole and somehow fall through that hole when the suits are pressurized to push air out and then still land on skin. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. 
follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Her eyes again focused on the report displaying inside her visor. You emphasize Kentrell's intelligence. Why? When he told me what happened, it was almost a word-for-word rendition of what he wrote in his incident report. He remembered what he said perfectly, all except for smelling bleach. It strikes me odd he has perfect recall for everything save for that one detail. So you think Cantrell is lying? Tim said. Clarence wasn't sure what he was thinking. Something just didn't seem to add up. Maybe. Maybe not. Another thing about that report struck me as odd. When he and Clark reached Walker, one of the things she said was, They bit me. Did you guys find a bite mark on her body? None, Tim said. But just because we didn't find one doesn't mean Clark and Cantrell were lying about hearing her say that. Clarence rubbed his face. He already felt so damn tired. Yeah, that's a good point. But the bleach discrepancy still bothers me. Maybe Tim should test him again. Margaret tapped the report back on, read something, tapped it back off. It's been 36 hours since Kentra was exposed. If he was infected, he'd have probably come up positive by now. Even if he's got a longer incubation period than we've seen in the past, he's being tested every three hours, so we'll find out soon enough. He's scheduled for his next test in 20 minutes. Clarence, can you take over the testing duties? I need Dr. Feely here with me. Clarence looked at Tim. Tim nodded. Ah, yeah. Clarence ground his teeth. Sure, Margo. I'll make sure Cantrell is tested every three hours. She turned back to the table. Tim got to work. Clarence heard the bone saws whine even through the control room's security glass. Then Margaret turned back. She stared up at Clarence. He had seen that look on her face before. She had figured something out, or was just on the edge of doing so. Margot, what is it? She looked down at Walker's corpse. Margaret lifted the severed arm, stared at it. The bite. Walker claimed to be bitten, but there are no bite marks. What if she was bitten on the arm? Tim stopped cutting into the skull. You're thinking she cut off her own arm not because she was infected like Dawsey, but because she thought it would prevent her from being infected? Maybe. Tim set the saw on a tray. He reached out into the air and started calling up information. Clarence tried to imagine himself in Walker's shoes, a submarine full of people, some of them turning into killers, killers that worked together like those soldiers in Michigan did during the last outbreak, and nowhere to run. It can spread from a bite? Probably. Some of the infection victims had growths on their tongue that could spread the contagion. But what matters is if Walker thought it could spread from a bite. Maybe she saw her friends being turned into murderers. Maybe she did anything she could not to become one herself. Like a zombie movie, 
You think she got bit, panicked, did what she thought might keep her from becoming one of the bad guys? Tim shook his head. Timeline doesn't add up for that, he said. She cut off that arm around 38 hours ago. Based on the state of her crawler, she was already heavily infected by that time. She was already... What's the word I want? Oh, she was already converted. Why would she cut off her own arm if one of her own kind bit her? Hell, Margaret, why would one of them bite her at all? The converted all work together like ants in a colony. My point exactly, Margaret said. Her eyes were sharp, full of sudden assuredness. The converted. That's an excellent term. Candace Walker had crawlers, absolutely, but she was not converted. Feely, get that brain out, and get it out now. Chapter 25 Breakfast of Champions Steve Stanton was done with the cold weather. The small stateroom he shared with Beau Pan wasn't toasty by any stretch of the imagination, but it was easily thirty degrees warmer than it was up on deck. Plus, no wind. Plus, no ice-cold water spray. Maybe he should have hired a bigger boat. The guest's stateroom was smaller than his freshman dorm back at Berkeley. It was cramped to begin with. Sharing the space with Beau Pan made it miserable. Beau Pan didn't do much. Mostly just sat in his bunk, sat and watched Steve type code. A small table built into the wall held two of Steve's three laptops. The other rested on top of the blankets of his bunk. He got the top bunk. He was the boss of this trip, after all. Cooper had warned him that spending too much time below decks could lead to seasickness, but so far Steve had felt no ill effects. If anything, the constant rocking motion made him hungry. He chewed mouthfuls of Doritos, which he washed down with swigs of Diet Coke. He felt Beau Pan staring at him. Steve kept typing, tried to ignore his bunkmate. Disgusting, Beau Pan said. I do not know how you eat such garbage. We have paid to rent this boat. They would let me use the little kitchen. I could cook you something. Steve tipped the bag of Doritos toward the old man. Breakfast of champions, Bopan. Want some? Blazing buffalo and ranch can't go wrong. Bopan's face wrinkled in disgust. He looked away. Steve shrugged and reached in for more. Imagine the dichotomy. Bo, king of phlegm pan, calling someone else disgusting. Your machine. Do you have its twat yet? Steve's eyebrows rose. I... Uh, it's what? Bopin leaned back slightly, confused. Twat? Is it that not what you call it? The twatter messages your machine sends? Ah, Steve said. Twitter? It's a tweet, not a twat. Big difference. The old man waved a hand, a gesture that might as well have been sign language for get off my lawn. Have you received any? Not yet. I'm sure it will twat at any moment. Using Twitter to send and receive messages from the platypus had been an act of genius, if Steve did say so himself. Twitter boasted 500 million accounts, sending up to 300 million tweets a day. It added up to an overwhelming amount of data flying across the Internet, 140 characters at a time. The typhoon of content was a perfect place for hiding messages. 
especially if they corresponded with a code held only by the receiver and the sender. Get in the kitchen and make me some pie might be an innocuous quote from a TV show. But if Steve sent it from his account, at Monster Mush to at The Mad Platypus, his lovely machine would know it was time to return to the launch point. There were over a thousand such tweet-based commands stored in the platypus's memory. Steve had programmed his baby to surface periodically and log on to the Internet by using a communication method ubiquitous throughout the United States, cell phone signals. Even though the UUV's sonar-dampening fur made it practically invisible to sonar, the U.S. naval assets in the area still made surfacing dangerous. Steve had to limit the number of surface trips the platypus could make. He called up a bathymetry map of Lake Michigan. Different bands of color represented different depths. Reds and yellows for 0 to 50 feet. Greens into greenish-blue to 150 feet. Blues through 300. There hadn't been a color for depths beyond 300 feet, because Lake Michigan's average depth was 279 feet. So Steve had programmed more. Blue-purple to purple for 300 to 500 feet. Purple to dark purple for 501 to 800 feet. Dark purple to black for the deepest spots the lake had to offer. The platypus's destination? The blackest spot on the map. Bopan's coordinates were in a spot known as Chippewa Basin, the very bottom of which was 923 feet deep. How solid are these coordinates? Steve asked. I'll program a search field. It would help to know how far out I have to plot for. The old man shrugged. He shrugged a lot. I only know what I have been told. It is the same location the American Navy has. That means ROVs and divers will be in the area. You had better hope your claims of near invisibility are accurate. Steve rocked slightly back and forth. He tried to control his excitement. Not just excitement, but also fear, stress, and anxiety. He believed he'd constructed the most advanced UUV ever created. Manufacturers and fabricators in a dozen countries had provided parts, had unknowingly helped him build the platypus. He'd had a huge budget to make his creation, but there was another organization with a far bigger checkbook, the U.S. Navy. The Navy had remotely operated vehicles. The Navy had unmanned vehicles. The Navy had some of the best minds in the world creating, designing, building. But the Navy had one limitation that Steve did not. The Navy itself. Proposals, funding, approvals, bidding, construction checks, supervised tests, dozens of administrative layers and miles of red tape that slowed down the creative process. Steve suffered through none of those things. The platypus incorporated the best components. Some were prototypes from other designers, things that had yet to enter beta testing, let alone hit the market. Others, Steve had designed himself. The biggest advantage, however, was that Steve had designed the platypus for one purpose and one purpose only. Military contractors had to make machines that could do multiple things in order to serve multiple masters. If Steve's creation went up against black-budget DARPA machines, which would come out on top? Could he really out-invent the world's largest buyer of weapons? Bopan hawked a loogie, spat it into his cup with a wet plop. He smiled. You seem nervous. Steve felt instantly insulted. Nervous? No. Just excited. 
well, a little nervous. We don't know what the Navy has. If something goes wrong with the platypus and it can't surface to send a signal, we'd never hear from it again. We'd never know what went wrong. The old man's smile faded. Do you know how much money was spent on your machine? Steve shook his head. Guess. I am curious if you are even close. Steve didn't really want to think about how much money he'd wasted if his machine had failed and was lying on the lake bottom. But he closed his eyes and mentally walked through what he knew about the components and the materials used to make them. Um, 18 million? Bopan laughed. The sound made Steve more nervous. Something about that laugh made his stomach pinch, made him afraid. <laughs> Eighteen million, Bopan said, shaking his head. You have no idea. The cost is one hundred and ten million, rounded down. A staggering sum. It didn't seem real. It seemed like Monopoly money. One hundred and ten million, Bopan repeated. If your machine does not return, Steve, then you have wasted not only our investment in you, but also all that money. Steve turned back to his computer. Still no tweet from the platypus. One hundred and ten million dollars. I'll write some more code, he said. I'll make sure we are not discovered. Bopan nodded. That is good. You do that while I make some calls. The old man pulled out his cell phone. He lay back in his bunk and let Steve get to work. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.